Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to episode number 208 of Real Life Ghost Stories. And to kick things off this week, I need to say thanks to some of our newest Patreon subscribers. I would like to thank Sharon Tiffin, Ruth Verkus, Amber, Gina Farina, Sharon, Emma Norton, Robert Fitzharris and Tom Cloherty. Thank you so much for subscribing to the Patreon. I love you and appreciate you every single day. And our film review this week, our film review is A Cure for Wellness. A Cure for Wellness was released in 2017. It has 6.4 out of 10 on IMDb and 42% on Rotten Tomatoes. An ambitious young executive is sent to retrieve his company's CEO from an idyllic but mysterious wellness centre at a remote location in the Swiss Alps. He soon suspects that the spa's miraculous treatments are not what they seem. When he begins to unravel its terrifying secrets, his sanity is tested as he finds himself diagnosed with the same curious illness that keeps all the guests here longing for the cure. This film was suggested when I put up an Instagram story asking for your underrated horror movie suggestions and this was one of them. So thank you to whoever it was that suggested that. And I'm going to start with the likes as always. And let me tell you something. The world needs to stop showing me me a goth. I'm I'm a sensitive girly, you know. I don't I, I just need her not to exist at the moment because she's she's making me feel bad about myself while simultaneously making me feel like I want to be her and simultaneously making me feel like like I'm a bit in love with her. She's everywhere and I I love it and I also hate it. I've very conflicting feelings about Mia Goth at the moment. In this film she plays a sort of weird, ethereal mystery girl who is in this sanatorium for unknown reasons and all we know is that she's sick that's all that we know and her and the ambitious young executive Lockhart they sort of form an unlikely alliance you know the standard when you're off in a weird wellness retreat in the Swiss Alps and you come across an ethereal sort of weirdly Victorian woman just knocking around the place. The film very much has Shutter Island vibes. Now, I'm a huge fan of both the film and the book Shutter Island. I think they are both absolutely fantastic. And this film is very much on a similar vein. You have this seemingly well-sane person who is entering into this environment in order to solve a mystery that seems to get more complex as time goes on. And do you know what I really enjoyed about this film is the abundance of eels. I enjoy an eel. And I think that eels are an underutilized animal in the world of the paranormal. Like eels are scary. You do get, you do, you tend to get a lot of snakes, a lot of spiders in paranormal stories. But eels, 
you know what? They have their place. Did you know that electric eels that are in the Amazon River, they can emit an electrical voltage that is enough to kill a man? Like, why are we not using them more in paranormal stories? I recognise that snakes have a dexterity in that they can be in water and on land. Eels, not so much on land. However, set more horror films in water and then we can have more eels. And the eels are not just a fleeting moment in this story. They are a pivotal role in this mystery. And you know what? Give the eels an Oscar. Give them a retrospective Oscar because I appreciated them being in this film. The setting of this film is both beautiful and jarring. So it's set in the Swiss Alps and I think they filmed most of it in Germany. It is absolutely stunning. Like the landscape, the backdrop is just amazing. And the film is set in modern times. But somehow when you go to the sanatorium, when we are introduced to the sanatorium, it feels like we just go back in time. And it's really well done and really ominous. And I sort of felt it the whole way through, but didn't really realise it until the end that it was making me feel really uncomfortable. The fact that we go to this sanatorium where everything seems to have stood still. Even the village that the sanatorium is in, time seems to have stood still. But Lockhart, who is our plucky executive, has come from a very modern finance world. And that's not something that is explored or discussed in the film It just is something that happens, which I think makes it even better because nobody's talking about it. You know, he doesn't, he's not like, oh, this place seems like I've gone back in time. Not at all. He just accepts it as it is. And therefore, as the audience, you also accept it as it is. But you're left with this really distinct feeling of unease. Which brings us swiftly to the dislikes for this film. Now, let me tell you, right, the script for this film was not good. It felt weird and forced and I didn't like it at all. It almost felt like it was stage dialogue and it was all a bit cringy. From the very beginning of the film, there's this moment in a big boardroom where our plucky executive realises he's in a bit of trouble, you know. And one of the women on the board makes this hideous, crude, over-sexualised remark about prison. And you can just put two and two together and imagine what the remark was. And... um. I, I just sat there and I was like, sorry, did she just did she just say what I think she said? And it, I felt like it was such bad script writing because it, it just was so jarring. It was so unnatural. And there was loads of moments in the script where people said things where I thought, OK, that's not how people speak in real life. Who wrote this? And as well as that, the movie is way too long. Like it goes on. And I felt like I was watching the same scenes over and over again somehow. I was just like... Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, I've seen it, seen it. Spooky sanatorium. Move on. Like, I want to figure out what's going on here. I don't want to see shots of our plucky executive looking confused or looking determined over and over again. Okay, I just want to know what is happening. What is the big mystery? Why are there so many eels? And I think in that the film was so long, lots of weird things happened that there is absolutely no explanation for. For example, when you're watching Shutter Island, lots of really strange things happen throughout the film. But then by the end of the film, all of those strange things are accounted for. They all had a reason and they all went some way to exposing what the answer to the mystery was in Shutter Island. Whereas this, like lots of weird things happened with seemingly no explanation. You know, there was bits where like doors disappeared and there didn't seem to be any explanation for that. There was one bit where um, 
I'm currently living with Nick from the Poisoner's Cabinet and he came home from work on his lunch break at about one o'clock in the afternoon. And I was sitting watching this film. It's like one o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. I'm watching this film. Nick walks in and I'm watching a woman inexplicably, a nurse, she inexplicably unbuttons her blouse and then an attendant starts masturbating furiously while staring at her. So they're having prolonged, intense, weird eye contact. He's masturbating furiously. That's what I'm watching as Nick comes in for his lunch at one o'clock in the afternoon. And I couldn't even explain what was happening. It's not as if I could go, oh, the reason why this is happening is because of this. No, no, couldn't explain it. Didn't seem to add anything to the plot. Didn't seem to add anything to the sense of mystery. It just happened and it was weird. And then I looked like a very strange person. And there were lots of moments like that throughout the story that just added nothing only to lengthen an already too long film. And I feel like they wanted to create a narrative where they were trying to explore whether or not our protagonist was mad. Like, was he a reliable narrator? Did we believe that he was mad or did we think that something weird was going on in this sanatorium? And actually, I just didn't care. He sort of somehow ended up being this flat 2D character. I didn't care whether he was considered mentally unwell or not. I didn't really care what happened to him. And to me, his character just didn't have enough depth or nuance to be able to create that sense of ambiguity, that sense of, I really don't know what's happening here and I don't know who to believe. There also were a number of plot holes in this story that annoyed me. And I'm not going to go into too much detail because I don't want to ruin the story for you. But there's a moment which isn't a plot hole, which was a complete continuity error, but it was such a vast continuity error that I was so shocked that it happened. There are some pretty gory scenes in this film, some scenes that will make you squirm and that made me feel very squirmy and uncomfortable. I didn't feel like they were gratuitous or unnecessary, but they are there and they're tricky to watch. And there's a scene in particular with teeth. Now, I I don't like anything that that deals with teeth. Uh, It freaks me out. But there is a scene where our protagonist, through whatever means, loses one of his front teeth and has a hole drilled in another one. And then later, the teeth are miraculously back again. And I don't believe for a second that that was done purposefully to create an unstable narrative. Not at all. I actually think it was a complete continuity error. And it was frustrating because I thought, ah, come on, guys, this is a this is a film with a pretty big budget and lots of people working on it. Shit like that shouldn't be happening. And I also really hated the ending. I didn't like it at all. I I thought it was a bit bizarre and I'd kind of guessed what was happening earlier on. So, you know, all in all, I wasn't mad on A Cure for Wellness. Um, It's going to be a two stars from me. I actually think the concept and the idea of it were really, really good. And I think the story could have been brilliant, but it was just pretty, I thought it was badly executed, to be honest. And it was way too long. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. 
from ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Which brings us to our story this week. Now, our story this week has been all over Facebook and it's been all over various news outlets and whatever this week and the BBC reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and I honestly, my head was about, it just grew enormously and I could barely fit through the door. It gave me such a big head. But they reached out to me and they said, hey, this series is coming out and uh, would you like to see uh, like a preview copy of it? And I was like, absolutely. So I watched it a couple of weeks ago, really enjoyed it. And I said, hey, I'd quite like to do a podcast episode about this, about this story. So here we are. And I actually had never heard this story before. I'd never even heard of it before, which is pretty unusual when it was such a high profile case at the time. If you're in the UK, I would highly recommend watching this series. Um, I'm not getting paid to say that just to be really clear. It's called Paranormal, The Girl, The Ghost and The Gravestone. And I think it's a great paranormal series because it is very sceptical. And instead of being highly Hollywoodized and designed to terrify you, I think it's more so designed to critically question what happens in these scenarios when there is a mystery that seems to be unsolvable. But obviously, if you're not in the UK and you don't have access to BBC iPlayer or the channel's BBC, then fear not because I'm going to break down the story for you. So let's get into it. When the BBC reached out to me and said they were making a paranormal TV show and that they would like me to watch it, I obviously jumped at the chance. It's called Paranormal, The Girl, The Ghost and The Gravestone. Firstly, hello BBC, reaching out to little old me. But secondly, and more importantly, it was a story I had never heard of. When I watched the show, I was curled up in bed ill and watched all four episodes back to back. I'm not entirely sure what I expected. As I said, I had never heard of this story In five years of paranormal podcasting and a lifetime of general spooky shenanigans. But there were elements of the story that I'd never seen in other paranormal cases. And elements of the story that seemed to mimic other well-known paranormal cases. In short, I was stumped. And I think I probably still am. I have flip-flopped wildly in this story between believing that it is paranormal and believing that it is a hoax and I think it's important to note that when I use the word hoax I generally don't think that anyone hoaxes paranormal events for nefarious reasons. I think there are probably complex and myriad reasons why someone might want to pretend that there are paranormal events in their home. But in this case the events are downright weird. They seem to have a historical link and there are many witnesses. I also think it's important to say that our story starts with the Virgin Mary. I'm not religious, nor am I trying to make this story into some religious venture. It just is what it is. Our story starts with the Virgin Mary. Initially, I hadn't intended on starting our story here, but on a second watch, it's clear that our story really does start with the Virgin Mary. In the summer of 1985, something fascinating happened in Ireland. It was the summer of the moving statues. 
I've spoken about this on Patreon in more detail and had my mom on to talk about it. So I'm not going to go into too much detail, but it all began in February of 1985 in the small village of Asti in County Kerry in the west of Ireland. A seven-year-old girl who was preparing for her first Holy Communion reported that she had seen the statues of the Virgin Mary and the Sacred Heart moving while she was praying in church. Within hours, other children were seeing the same thing and the next day, around 2,000 people descended on the church in this small village in the west of Ireland. From there, the phenomenon spread. It moved quickly through the country and reports of Virgin Mary apparitions poured in. Statues moved in Ballydesmond near the Cork border. In Ballinspittle, 10,000 people were gathering a night by July in order to see the miracle of the moving statues. In Monasterevan, the Miller family were witness to the miracle. In Strabilly, a woman called Mary Moore popped into the church to light some candles and saw a vision of Jesus morphing into the statue of the Virgin Mary. In September in Sligo, thousands of people gathered in a field after four local schoolgirls claimed to have seen an apparition of the Virgin Mary in the sky. In all, it is estimated that in that hot summer, moving statues were reported at 30 locations around the country. It's difficult to know what spawned this mass supernatural experience. The summer of 1985 was a particularly tricky one in Ireland. In July, an Air India plane had been blown up mid-flight in Irish airspace. Ireland was in the grips of a deep economic depression and as a result there was mass emigration. This, combined with mass unemployment, meant that people were struggling. Not only this, but the situation in Northern Ireland was volatile and people were finally starting to challenge the stronghold of the Catholic Church in the country by bringing abuses to light and challenging the church teachings as law in the country. All in all, it seems that it was a period of great flux and change in Ireland. The reason for starting with this anecdote about the summer of the moving statues in Ireland may seem tenuous, but to me it is important. Irish people had had a period of time where apparitions of the Virgin Mary were multitudinous and the visions of the Virgin Mary were not just confined to Ireland. I suppose our story really starts with her in a field in Wales. On March the 7th, 1997, an Irish couple were on a hiking holiday in Wales when they believed they saw an apparition of the Virgin Mary in a field near Mould in the north of the country. Not only did they see a vision of the Virgin Mary, but they claimed that she had healed them. He had had a frozen shoulder, which was miraculously healed, and she had had a cataract on her eye, which was miraculously healed. Naturally, the claims were met with scepticism and in some cases ridicule, but there were also people who really believed it. People travelled by the busload to the spot where they had seen her in order to try and get a piece of this miracle cure. Interestingly, this particular apparition does not appear on the official database of apparitions of the Virgin Mary. Yes, there is an online database, so it must not have been considered noteworthy enough, but the local people still remember it, and it still gets wrapped up in today's story. Whether it's relevant or whether it's confused with the events of our story, I'm not sure. I guess it's important to note that contextually, Irish people were no strangers to visions of the Virgin Mary. The couple who had allegedly seen her 
would have been witness to the summer of the moving statues. So it may be just a case of mistaken identity. But we'll come back to the Virgin Mary in due course. If it even was her at all. Our story centres around an unassuming farmhouse, close to where the Virgin Mary had been spotted. Interestingly, the sightings happened so close to the house in both proximity and time that the incidents have melded together in some people's remembrance. Local people have sometimes thought that the Virgin Mary sighting happened at the house and to the same family, but that is not the case. The Gower family were an English family who had moved to a beautiful farmhouse in Wales. Rosemary was a stay-at-home mother who homeschooled their son, John Paul, who had Down syndrome. David Gower was a doctor of chemistry and a head teacher in a local school, and they had three adult daughters who no longer lived at home but who visited home regularly. The Gower family had moved into the farmhouse in 1997, and in October 1998, something strange had happened to Rosemary. Perhaps it had been the first sign that something was wrong, It would seem ridiculous to call it coincidental. Rosemary had flowers in a vase in the lounge, and though she had eked every last bit of life out of them that she could, it was time for her to admit that they were dead and needed to be removed. As she took them out of the vase and across to the bin in the kitchen, the petals dropped off and littered the floor. Before she had the chance to clear them up, there was a knock at the front door. A delivery. She went to the door, greeted the delivery man, shut the door and returned to the kitchen. No more than 30 seconds had passed. The petals were gone. That in itself was strange. But it was what the petals were replaced with that shocked Rosemary. Where every petal had fallen, there was now a dead or a half-dead wasp. Lots of them, littering the floor where the petals had been. It was one of those situations that was so odd that there was nothing Rosemary could do but clean up the wasps and continue with her day. When they had moved into the farmhouse, it came with certain quirks. Of course it did. It was a relatively old farmhouse in the Welsh countryside. One of the more unusual and interesting quirks was the gravestone. They had laughed when they first saw it. It seemed almost quaint, almost amusing at first, like a Halloween decoration that had been left behind. They had joked about it and joked about the house being haunted, but then they moved it. They didn't expect that the house would come with its very own gravestone, propped up against a wall of the house. It read, Jane Jones died aged 15, 1778. Their daughter was getting married and the reception was being held at the farmhouse. It was the perfect place for a wedding, beautiful, scenic and with lots of space. But the gravestone added a certain macabre factor that perhaps wasn't suitable for a wedding, so they moved the gravestone and hid it from view. This, to them at least, seemed to be a catalyst. The action unleashed something into their lives. It was New Year's when the first word appeared. 
Rosemary and David had returned home from a New Year's Eve party at their daughter Nicolette's house. It had been a wonderful evening, but they were looking forward to getting home and going to bed. It was David that noticed it first. It was a sort of corner of his eye noticing. The feeling that something was off came first and then he saw the word. A stain on the stone wall, a black stain, definitely letters. David was puzzled and moved towards the word, leaning towards the stone wall to get a better look. The black stain on the wall read Tagnefeth, which he knew was a Welsh word because of the double D at the end, but he had no idea what it meant. He called for Rosemary to come and look at the wall and they both studied the stain, wondering how on earth it had gotten there. Had someone been in the house and written on their wall? The doors had been locked and there was no evidence that anyone had been in the house. Nothing had been disturbed. But there was no mistaking this word. They hurried to find a Welsh dictionary. Tangnefeth meant peace. This was not the only word to appear. While Tangnefeth was the first, it was by no means the last. Words began appearing constantly. Some were stained onto the wall, but some were carved into the wall. Carved isn't even the right word. They seemed indented, like someone had somehow made a deep impression of the word into the wall. The words were all in Welsh, The Welsh word for monk, the Welsh word for persecution. Crosses appeared frequently. Words appeared behind radiators indented or stained onto the wall as though the radiator wasn't there at all. Words appeared behind heavy furniture. And even more strange was that the words would disappear. Not just the stained words, they would appear and disappear frequently, but the indentations would appear and disappear too. The family had no idea what was happening in their home. How were these words appearing and disappearing? The family spoke no Welsh. And yet, all of the words that appeared and disappeared were in Welsh. And it wasn't long before the first apparition appeared. Rosemary was at the kitchen sink one morning, washing up when she saw her. A girl of about 15 was standing in their garden. She was reaching down to pet a ginger cat. She was wearing a blue cloak and she looked heavily pregnant. Rosemary immediately ran out into the garden and the girl was gone. And then there was the monk. Rosemary was not the only person to see apparitions in the house and while it seems that no one else saw the girl in the blue cloak, other people did see the monk. Rosemary and David's daughters would come and stay in the house from time to time, sometimes to visit and sometimes while Rosemary and David were away. And the strange happens continued even when Rosemary and David weren't around. Nicolette in particular spent a lot of time in the house and her experiences were unnerving to say the least. Nicolette would often awaken in her bed and be unsure of what it was that had woken her. She would sit up in bed and hear it. The sounds of children singing. Unearthly voices echoing from somewhere in the house, soft but clearly children singing. 
Sometimes she would check, but she soon got to the point where she realised that she could check and check again and there was nothing there. These were the voices of something other, something unseen. And with the voices came shadows, just fleeting glimpses out of the corner of your eye, but always too quick to see full on. They seemed to lurk in doorways and move from room to room. She would hear muffled voices in conversation, but again could never quite make out what they were saying. And she could never find a source of the voices. She felt as though she was being watched all the time that she was there. A feeling that she just couldn't shake. The house was plagued by cold spots and not drafts or open windows. It was an individual spot of ice cold that would take you by surprise, that would make you shiver in spite of yourself. Nicolette also saw the words appear and disappear. But one day in particular would change her views on the haunting. It had seemed relatively innocuous up until this point. But then it changed. Her son's name appeared on the wall. Quinn. She was rattled. Up until this point, the words had been in Welsh and, based on their translations, had been largely benevolent and often religious. But there was something so unnerving about her little boy's name appearing on the wall, something so ominous. That night she awoke to the sound of the latch on her bedroom door lifting and lowering. She opened her eyes and let them adjust to the dark while trying to make sense of the sound that she had just heard. She sat up in bed and felt the cold wave of horror as she looked towards Quinn's cot. Standing over it was a robed figure. It appeared to be looking at the sleeping Quinn. The robe had a hood that was pulled up over its head like a habit. And when Nicolette flicked on the lamp, it was gone. Nicolette had had sleep paralysis before. And this, she knew, was not the same. This was real. And she was not the only one to experience the monk. Her sister Adrienne had woken one night to a monk standing over her, seemingly watching her sleep. She flailed and panicked and when she flicked on the lamp, the figure was gone. And there was a gower child that remained in the household, John Paul. There seemed to be references to John Paul that appeared on the walls. The words disabled child appeared on the walls in Welsh. Nicolette was in her bedroom one day and heard John Paul talking to himself, or so she believed. She heard the rise and fall of John Paul's familiar voice. And then she heard the response. A much deeper man's voice responding to John Paul and responding, she believed, in Welsh. Nicolette stopped what she was doing and listened again. It was clear that John Paul was speaking and that someone else was responding but she didn't know who that someone else was. She didn't recognise the voice. She quickly ran into John Paul's room and found him alone. No sign of anyone else there. When she asked him who he was talking to, he simply said, the monk. The family believed that John Paul had more dealings with the monk than they did, or at least he could see the monk more than the others. 
At one point, they decided to make an attempt to communicate with the monk and wrote some questions down in Welsh and put them in a sealed envelope. The family could feel the atmosphere in the house change. It became thicker and darker. And suddenly, without warning, an office chair that was on casters flipped over. John Paul simply looked on and said, The monk is not happy, Mum. They found what they believed to be part of a human spine buried on their land. And they had had enough. They buried the gravestone in an attempt to get rid of it in order to sell the place. They were terrified that the visible presence of the gravestone would deter people from buying the property. They eventually sold the house and the current owners have reported no strange goings on. But they did find the buried gravestone. So what was happening in Penneforth Farm? There are lots of interesting tidbits of information that accompany this story. Firstly, previous owners had stated that they felt a presence there growing up and that they believed there was something on the land. Some neighbours have reported that there is a strange feeling on the land, that something is just off. Historically, Jane Jones existed. She was a young girl in the local area who died in childbirth at the age of 15. And it is likely that in that time period, being pregnant at that age and out of wedlock would be enough to ensure that when you died, you would not be buried in consecrated ground. So was the unsettled spirit of Jane Jones the reason for the words and the apparition of the girl in the blue cloak? But why a monk? There is no evidence that there was a monastery on the grounds, but yet various members of the family had reported seeing a monk, or what they believed to be a monk. And it wasn't just members of the family that had seen a monk in the house. During this time period, it is reported that a double glazing salesman visited the house in order to sell his wares. He was invited in and spent some time in the house chatting to the occupiers. When he returned to his car, his wife was white as a sheet. She had accompanied him on his rounds and had waited for him in the car. When he asked her what was wrong, she simply responded, That house is haunted, isn't it? She had seen a dark, shadowy figure, wearing a robe, passing back and forth in front of the house. But again, why a monk? Well, as it happens, the house is on an old pilgrimage route, and there have been numerous reported sightings of monks appearing on the route, generally walking along the roadside. As an interesting aside, there have also been reports of raining frogs along the route. And while that is incredibly strange, it does happen from time to time, generally in exceptional weather circumstances. And the last time it happened was in Croydon in 1998. During the height of the strangeness on Penneforth Farm, the house was visited by a Dr. Daniels, a psychologist, who could find no explanations for what was happening in the home. And to this day, he still sees the case as unsolved. And I guess it's important to note that there is still one piece of evidence that I have not mentioned. One final part of the puzzle. Items moved around the home on a regular basis. And one item in particular moved frequently. It moved when Rosemary and David weren't there. It moved when Nicolette and her husband were house-sitting. In one instance, Nicolette's husband left the room momentarily. And when he returned, this item had moved from the kitchen to the living room. 
and was now upside down in the fireplace. It was a large wooden owl. And I guess that this is proof that it's always owls. Obviously, I had to kind of change the timeline slightly to make the story fit into a narrative. So this isn't an exact telling of the events that happened, but all of the events that are did in the narrative come from the story of Penneforth Farm. And I'd highly recommend that you watch the documentary series Paranormal, The Girl, The Ghost and The Gravestone. It's really interesting. And I think the host, Shan Aleri, asks the questions that need to be asked in a case like this and is very direct about asking those questions. So why did I start with the Virgin Mary, right? Well, I'm really interested in the summer of the moving statues as it happened in Ireland in the 80s. I think it's a really fascinating look into how people were feeling at the time, but also how these things can spread like wildfire, like how these things catch and suddenly lots of people are experiencing something similar. I don't for a second believe that the moving statues were a hoax. I don't believe that it is necessarily supernatural. But what I do believe is that the people who experience this really truly believe that they experienced those statues moving. So when you see interviews with the people who were involved in it at the time, they really truly believed that this happened to them. So in that sense, it's really interesting whether it's sociological, psychological or paranormal. It's a really interesting thing that happened. And the reason why I started with that is because I feel like at that time period, Irish people were sort of primed to see visions of the Virgin Mary in a very particular way. And the incident in Wales where the hikers saw what they believed to be the Virgin Mary happened kind of barely 10 years later. And they would have experienced the phenomenon of the moving statues in Ireland. So they would have seen all the hype about it. Maybe they would have gone to the shrines themselves to see the moving statues. Maybe they were part of the thousands of people that showed up. I don't know. But what I will say is that they would have had a very distinct idea about what the Virgin Mary would have looked like. A kind of Eurocentric Western view of what the Virgin Mary looks like. And fundamentally, when people see visions of the Virgin Mary, she is often described as wearing a blue cloak. And I wondered, what if it wasn't the Virgin Mary that they saw at all? What if what they actually saw was the same apparition that Rosemary saw out her window of a girl of 15, whatever age she was, in a blue cloak. And in that moment, because they were already primed to believe that the Virgin Mary would appear wearing a blue cloak, etc., etc., that they wrongly believed that what they saw was the Virgin Mary. And as for the curing and the healing, I mean, it's not my place to say whether those things actually happened or not. But I think that placebo effects are really strong. And if you are primed to believe that you see a vision of the Virgin Mary, it can have miraculous cures. Then maybe you would accredit natural improvement of a condition to a miraculous cure. But it really did make me think, what if it wasn't the Virgin Mary that they saw? What if it was Jane Jones or who we assume to be Jane Jones? And really interestingly, in the beginning of the documentary series, when Shan Aleri goes to speak to neighbours they confuse what happened with Penneforth Farm with the sighting of the Virgin Mary. Not confused probably isn't the right word. They mix the two things together. The two things become blended together. 
and initially I was kind of like, oh, well, it's understandable that that would happen because the things happened in a similar time period. So the sighting of the Virgin Mary and the beginning of the weirdness at Penneforth Farm happened in a similar time period and they happened geographically very close together. So I sort of dismissed it at that. And then I thought, well, what if actually they are more linked than people realise? And it also very selfishly gave me a chance to talk about the summer of the moving statues, which, like I said, I'm very interested in. So look, I am still in two minds about what I believe about this. Firstly, I think the family being an English-speaking family and not being Welsh-speaking actually, I think, doesn't mean a huge amount in this instance because Welsh to English dictionaries would exist. And what you were looking at fundamentally was individual words, which would be easy to find in the dictionary and easy to kind of copy out onto the wall. And when I put up a TikTok about this particular story, people were in the comments talking about, well, in the 1700s, if if we are to believe that these apparitions, so the apparition of the young girl, the apparition of the monk, if they're from a time period, you know, from the 1700s, whatever, would they have had a Welsh word for disabled? I don't know. I don't know the etymology of words like that. And I also don't know very much about the Welsh language. So I can't answer that. But I thought it was an interesting point to put out there. What I do know is that, for example, in the Irish language, obviously, as language changes and as time moves on, there are different words for different things, different technology being created. So we're getting new words all the time. And Irish language has had to adapt in order to encompass these new words. And I'm pretty sure there's like a forum of Irish speakers who meet every year and they decide what the Irish translation for these new words is going to be. But like I said, I know very little about the Welsh language, but I thought it was kind of an interesting point to raise. I think it's also important to point out that there is a similarity between this case and the Belmez faces in the appearance and disappearance of patterns, stains on the walls. And what they do really in depth, I think, in this documentary is an exploration of how this can be done. So how can you create words on the wall and then make them disappear? And actually... There are chemical reactions that can allow you to do this, which I didn't realise. I think it was silver nitrate, but I could be wrong about that. I can't remember. And I didn't write down in my notes what the actual chemical reactions were. But there are ways that you can, you know, chemicals that you can put on the wall, that you can write words. They will appear later, appear as a black stain and then disappear again later. And like I said in the beginning, David has a PhD in chemistry. So it's very likely that he would have known that these chemical compounds mixed together can cause these kinds of reactions and he probably would have been able to get access to these chemicals however that doesn't explain the indentations in the walls and if you watch the series there there's loads of picture evidence of these indentations in the walls and these are old stone walls like I don't know how you would make an indentation if the words were simply carved into the walls in like a scratching motion then you could say, well, a human being could very easily do that. But they weren't. And a lot of the witness testimony in this particular case seems to stem from Rosemary. She seems to have kept a diary of everything that happened, which I would say would be very useful. And if I was in a situation like that where something was happening in my house, I didn't understand it, I probably would keep a diary. And she is the person that went on the TV shows gave the TV interviews, etc., which I will say from looking at the footage, the archive footage in this documentary, she seemed to really 
enjoy giving those TV interviews. And realistically, while we talk about this this series of events having like 300 pieces of documented evidence, a lot of the documented evidence is pictures of the words on the wall. And then the rest of the time, I think we sort of rely on the testimony of the family. And I do think the daughter, so in the series, you meet Nicolette and Adrian, and they are profoundly impacted by what happened to them in that house. That much is very, very clear, that whatever happened, they believe that it was paranormal and they don't believe that their parents faked the events for any reason. And they are very much impacted by the things that happened to them and the things that happened to their brother, John Paul. I believe it's Nicolette in the documentary who talks quite a lot about John Paul and his experiences and that feeling of helplessness and recognition that John Paul was also going through something and her concerns about the impact that that would have on him. And as we know, being a teenager is a precarious and hormonal time. And it is often teenage years that are linked with poltergeist activity. And we've seen evidence of poltergeists spelling out words before, like, for example, the Humpty Doo poltergeist case. Is it possible that this was actually centering around John Paul and it was sort of like a perfect storm that he, as a teenager, likely going through puberty and difficult changes, was then exuding all of this energy and already there was the propensity for haunting because of the sad story of Jane Jones and also because of the house being on this pilgrimage route and that attracted things, entities to the house and as a result they ended up in this bizarre situation with words appearing on the walls and apparitions etc. It's only a suggestion, I'm just throwing it out there. I also would recommend watching this documentary just for the interviews with Rosemary and to a lesser extent David because there's something about them that really intrigues me and I think the interviews are the reason why I can't quite figure out what I believe about this case and I do believe fundamentally that this family went through something that profoundly impacted them and you know the the sisters and the sisters partners have said that things happened in the house when Rosemary and David weren't there that things moved they also witnessed things happening and it seems that there is just a high strangeness in the area and on that route and like I said I haven't been paid to talk about this but I think it's a really interesting documentary to watch and I think it's a really interesting story but I still can't quite make up my mind what I think about it let me know if you've seen it let me know what you thought of it if you have seen it let me know do you think that this story is a real paranormal case or do you think that somebody in the household was faking the events or do you think that it's a mixture of both? I'm sort of weirdly inclined to think that it might just be a mixture of both. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you have a story that you would like to submit to the podcast, you can send it to Podcast at gmail.com. And if you are desperate for some extra content, you can subscribe to the Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash Stories, where for $5 a month or $2 a month, you get access to heaps of extra content, as well as every single main and mini episode completely ad free. And on that note, I shall see you next Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Next time, 